we are covering April 12th at Digital Bytes for the podcast. It's been an amazing day working from home. I have out-of-control dogs. We're going to do an article about animals in Web3. Animals in Web3. Do you think your dog didn't bite the postman again there, James? I swear we were getting ready to do this podcast, and we got attacked by a U.S. <laughs> Postal Service worker. There's a joke in there somewhere from the 80s. And our dogs were ready to defend us. You heard them. Certainly did. Hope the, hope the postman wasn't bringing you a speeding ticket, though. No, I thought maybe the postman would be bringing me a class action settlement suit from, like, FTX or something. That would have been cool. <laughs> well, your favorite man, Craig Wright. Craig Wright. How you doing? Yeah, he, you. he was in the news just now in Miami. He was okay. going to be found in contempt of court. I think he fulfilled the, the needs. But he, that man is always in the news. Yeah, well, he's certainly a colorful character. But, uh, but as you say, this is Digital Bite Show, 12th of April. Straight after Easter, probably eating far too much chocolate. And this week we've got analysis. We've been looking at Web3 and in the healthcare sector, a subject which I know you'll like. Will cryptos, will they sink or swim? All very relevant given Bitcoin has gone back over 30,000 today. We're recording this on the 12th of April. And then been looking at stable coins, central bank digital currencies, or a new thing called bank deposit tokens, which Certainly J.P. Morgan are, are very keen on. And uh, welcome, listeners. This is a weekly show that James and I do. James is based the other side of the pond in good old USA. And myself, I'm Johnny Fry here in the UK. Finally, the sun's come out. And every week we're looking at a whole host of different how, where and why blockchain technology and digital assets are being used in different industries and different countries. If you'd like to get a copy, just go to James Tiley at cyber.fm or myself, Johnny Fry at Team Blockchain, and we'll send you a free copy every week of just lots of case studies, lots of examples, no selling in there. It's just thought-provoking and educational, and then we do the show. And after the break, um, we've got a special guest coming up um, to look at, as we do every week, diff- different angles, different topics. And this week, we've got our friend, the KC, not KC in the Sunshine Band, but the King's Council. James Ramsden, and he's going to be talking about crypto assets, judicial oversight of regular decisions. God, I bet James would like to have a, a ding-dong with Craig Wright, because he's already been in court once with him, hasn't he, with the old tulip trading case, James? Craig Wright is just always in court. He's Craig wrong. <laughs> or Craggy something, but uh, there you go. We, we actually know for a fact that, in all seriousness, Craig listens to this podcast. We we know that because he has voiced his opinion to me anyway. Hey, do you think that he didn't go after you because you're like intimidating? He thought maybe he could take me. No, I think he he realized that you you are much more fun to take. I'm, I'm too dull. But uh, good day, Craig. If you're listening from wherever you are, I think we're in the UK these days. But uh, but there you go. But but James, one of the things we were talking about. So I know you're you, you follow these markets very closely. Cryptos, is it all over? Do you think they're just going to disappear, or do you think they actually will start swimming against the tide of regulation and the SEC and all the other sort of various nefarious characters like FTX we've had. You know, we've been quite a quite a roller coaster period for cryptocurrencies, hasn't it? Yeah. So I'm gonna take a this is what I think is going on. I'm not gonna lie to you. In the in the United States, we have regular people, I should say. We have all but lost all trust in our financial regulatory system and first it happened in crypto right 
the SEC lawsuit with Ripple, for example, we were like, oh, no, oh, no, this is bad for Ripple. Total strangers, like TV shows, are mocking how badly that lawsuit's going for the SEC, right? Really? Uh, It's just when your next-door neighbor is like, hey, I heard Ripple's really good. I heard they're really knocking the government around. You have to stop for a moment and go, oh, my God. Is, is it becoming, we're getting there. We're normal now. And I think what helped that was the FTX fallout. Because the FTX fallout, FTX was in the Super Bowl. They had the Miami Heat. FTX yep. had famous, famous actors and athletes and spokespeople. And they're all getting sued by the government. So we're going to put, you know, Sam Bakeman Freed is probably going to do a little time. Something's yep. going to happen. But they're going after Shaq, Tom Brady. The government, look, don't go after a football star. We know he was a paid actor, right? They went after the Kardashians on a, on a token, or was it Celsius? That one, I'm not so sure. When the government says we have no choice but to go after the famous people, that regular people love. Regular people take notice. I never heard of Dogecoin. I never heard of this. I never heard of that. Shaq likes it. It can't be that bad. And then what? He likes it. He he changed Twitter's logo to Dogecoin because the SEC was saying he was promoting. All he was saying is that here's here's a crypto. We're going to use it to buy a car or something. Right, right. And Tesla, right. But I think what pushed us over the edge today, I caught me off guard. Bitcoin's $30,000. Ethereum coming back for two grand. It's only the beginning. Being optimistic. I'm being that guy. I think the reason we triggered it was all of the inflation and the banks collapsing. Regular people said, we have a problem. I'm paying eight US dollars for peanut butter. My bank is gone this is stuff that i read about and wait a minute were these crypto people correct and i think we're seeing new money out of fear out of failure out of gary gensler jokes we're seeing new money and i'm hopeful i'm happy i say twitter change it over to the dog bitcoin bitcoin is that is approaching what we call a 50 percent dominance it's back bitcoin's back back again I think it's all new people, and I think it's the government's own fault. And tell me what you think of this. On March 14th, the U.S. government sold thousands of Bitcoin on the market. It does not take a rocket scientist to say, oh, wait a minute. You said the government might ban Bitcoin? You know, the real extreme news. How is the government going to ban Bitcoin if they're the ones selling Bitcoin. Why would they do that to themselves? You're going to need Coinbase. You're going to need Binance to dump on your citizens. Well, and and exactly. And at the moment, the U.S. is the biggest miner of Bitcoin. So Arkansas has just announced that you can now legally mine Bitcoin, and it's all been recognised. That 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 passed their Senate bill, their state bill, just end of last week. There's a huge industry in Texas because these states are beginning to realize there's investment, there's money, there's job, there's taxes. And then 
over in Russia, I, I know it's not everyone's favorite place because of what they've been doing, you know, in Ukraine, but Russia is now giving 50% subsidy for Bitcoin mining because the Ruskies have realized, hang on, there's money here. So I think you're right. I think that there is definitely new money coming into the crypto space. And historically, when we have Bitcoin halving, so every 210,000 blocks, that's about every four years, the amount of rewards that the miners get for you know, using their high-powered computers, it halves. So it's going to go down from six and a half to three and a quarter Bitcoins every roughly 10 minutes. And that's going to happen sometime next March, April time. And it's getting harder to mine these Bitcoins. And that tends to under 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 support or support the price. So I think that people are beginning to realize. The other interesting thing I saw, some stats coming out from Citibank, and this, this has a wider implications, but they were saying that ultra high net worth investors, you know, people like you, James, who've got loads of money, um, they have 46% of their money in alternative investments. Now, alternative investments could be hedge funds, venture capital funds, private equity funds, jewellery, art, classic cars, that sort of stuff. Whereas just affluent investors, they only have 6% in alternative investments. And I think that what we're beginning to see is the use of the technology blockchain that underpins some of these cryptos is being used to digitize private equity funds, venture capital funds. You're seeing NFTs on all sorts of different sort of, you know, cars and jewelry and art and stuff like that. And so I think that we are going to definitely see the digitization gaining much more momentum. And I think alongside that, I, I do think cryptos are going to do reasonably well, even though 90% of them are probably complete and utter rubbish. But I do think some of them and Bitcoin, if you want to have exposure to the sector, it's still the big daddy. As you say, it's 50% of the market cap. So I wouldn't be at all surprised. And we're not here to give investment advice. But I think you could see Bitcoin going. Whether it'll hit was a million, the CEO of Coinbase said he 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 reckons it's going to he stake two million on the basis it's going to reach a million. The pr- a price of one Bitcoin, thirty thousand to a million. I'm not sure about that one though. I will say this, right? Regardless of the price, you know, you know what? If you're a trader, you don't care if Bitcoin's fifteen grand, right? Because you're just going to trade it up and down. So yeah. the speculation about prices is one thing. But how about this? When I was a kid. We used to have a a commercial on TV for E.F. Hutton. And I was eight years old, nine years old. I didn't know what E.F. Hutton was, but I remember the commercial. The guy would say something on a train and everybody would stop. It was a joke and it would all turn their heads. And the narrator would go, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone listens. If you take that theory, because it was true, when E.F. Hutton spoke, everybody, that that was the firm. Today, the Coinbase... CEO is challenging the government publicly when others would not. The Coinbase CTO is staking two million on Bitcoin, reaching one million. He's having fun. And BlackRock Capital, BlackRock, when BlackRock speaks, everyone listens. So if you take Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and CyberFM, Digital Bytes on block, Team Blockchain, these people are on the internet now and they're listening. I would say BlackRock, Coinbase, are the new EF Hutton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with that, I step back. You let me run this whole show. No, nah, not at all. But Jen, just, just finishing off all this, it's extraordinary the amount of coverage that cryptocurrencies get. Look, they're only worth a trillion. 
and yet people they seem to grab so much attention and and it's it's probably fomo people are frightened of fear of missing out because they saw bitcoin go from nothing to 64,000 you mentioned ripple earlier on just in one year the price of xrp obviously ripple's nothing to do with xrp but nevertheless never the twain shall meet but nevertheless They're related right XRP, yeah that went up 38,000% in one year and that's what i think has caught the public's imagination but it seems to grab a lot of attention and the governments are worried that cryptocurrencies are going to replace the pound, the dollar, the, you know, the Swiss franc. I don't think that's going to happen. But all the time the governments keep on undermining the banking system, then they are going to look something different. And that's really why we wrote this article. Do we need stable coins or bank deposit tokens? Because we were looking at some analysis from Boston Consulting Group and Singapore Regulated Exchange. They reckon that the the market for digitized investments. So here we're looking at maybe digitizing the repo market. We discussed this a couple of weeks ago or digitizing real estate. Now, real estate's only $326 trillion in size, according to Savills. And 80% of that are the homes that we rent and we live in. And they're saying, well, maybe we can make that process a little bit more efficient. Well, if we start seeing bonds and real estate and equities being digitized, then you're going to have to have a form of paying the coupons, paying the rent, paying the dividends. And they're not probably going to go back into banking systems because the banks, especially in America, are in all sorts of problems. There's $17.3 trillion worth of bank deposits and only $3 trillion of cash and short-term security to back it up because of our crazy fractional banking. So you are going to see people wanting to have their money held in slightly different ways. And this is being seen now by people looking at, rather than putting my money in the bank and I become creditor to the bank, I'm at risk if a bank goes bust. They're saying, well, why can't I have a stable coin? And the money's still held by the bank, but rather than being on deposit, the bank act as a treasury management service. So James, you'll remember your days back on Wall Street where that people were doing cash mutual funds. And, and we've seen nearly $4 trillion, $4 trillion of money come out of the banks and go into mutual funds. Another $1.5 trillion has gone into certificates of deposit. As people are saying, I just don't trust the banks. And so we're beginning to see money going to some of these alternative investments. And recently, we've seen JP Morgan coming out and they're saying, well, what about actually having something, a deposit bank token. And so these are issued on a blockchain by a bank, and it has evidence of the fact the money is there. And But the tokens, the bank deposit tokens, they can be completely integrated into the current banking, regulatory and compliance and procedures systems. But what it means is that using smart contracts, you can now start trading these things 24-7 on a peer-to-peer basis. So what I found particularly interesting is when you look at Signature Bank, and Signature Bank is one of the banks that went bust because it was a small bank and people suddenly took the money out of it. And a lot of people said, yeah, but Signature Bank, that's a crypto bank. Well, actually, they were doing more business with cargo and shipping on using blockchains because people in that, in that sector wanted real-time payments and corporate companies we're saying, well, I want to be able to make payments 24-7. So it was nothing to do with crypto. It was all about moving your money much, much more efficiently. So I think we're going to see a lot more discussion, and I think we're going to see some products come out. And these bank, these deposit bank tokens, they're, they're actually they're not really stable coins. 
they're not they're not dissimilar to mutual money, money market fund in some ways in the sense that the money's ring fenced and safe and i think that's going to be something people are going to increasingly looking for even if you're jp morgan people are still going to say how safe is my money if the proverbial hits the fan james you know, at the same time it's really not that far-fetched right it's growing up we had a even as a kid had a savings account with a ledger and i would go to the bank and i would make a deposit and the lady would stamp my book that was the ledger. That was, I got my stamp was the token. The ledger was the ledger. Now we're talking about yep. distributed ledger. So it's not far-fetched. It's just progress, probably the way it should go. Yeah, but I, but I think this demand is going to come because we need to have a way to make these payments faster and cheaper. And as we start to see other assets digitizing, as I mentioned, funds and equities and bonds and real estate, they're going to need a way to make those payments and make those payments automatically using smart contracts, make it more transparent, make it faster, make it cheaper. Oh, and by the way, it makes it more inclusive because many people that don't have a bank account do have a mobile phone so that they can do mobile banking. But uh, there they go. James, I'm mindful we've got, we got the KC, the King's Council. He's sitting in the green room. And we've had James Ramsden on before, if you remember, when he was talking about tulip trading, which was the case with our friend Craig Wright. He's been suing some developers of Bitcoin because he wants his money back. And James Ramsden has been defending the developers all that's going to go back to court next year but james has done an article crypto assets a judicial oversight of regulatory decisions i know how much you love it when i get lawyers on board you get all really excited but he's coming up after the break well i like him because he he got craig right to attack me so that i know if i need a lawyer who to call he's your man he's your man okay but don't forget if you want to get a copy of digital bytes then contact james tiley at cyber.fm or myself johnny fry at Team Blockchain, and we'll be back after this short break, and we'll be talking to James Ramsden. Well, Johnny, you know I love you, and we had Valentine's Day, but I don't love you like that, not yet anyway. You haven't convinced me to come over to the UK. We, Speaking of the UK, I always, I always become dumbfounded with certain guests that we have, because you'll tell me that we have a, a lawyer, right, or important, like a, now this is a king's counselor, Right, his name is James Ramsden, and if, if you ask me, I'm like, so what's your 800 number? Right, what's your toll-free phone number for me to call you? So there's a tremendous difference over here in the United States. I think I'm talking to an attorney of some sort, but these are powerful people, right? These are lawyers. Are lawyers get a bad name in the United States, and you guys make them sound superheroish? Well, they are. They're superheroes. They keep the bandits bay, hopefully, or if they. If the bandits get caught, then they're brought to justice. But, but, but James, James Ramsden, not James Tully, James Ramsden, welcome to the show. And, and for our international listeners, it'd be really helpful if you just give us a quick rundown, because you've recently, you're no longer a Queen's Council, you're on a King's Council. But would you mind explaining what a barrister is and perhaps, uh, you know, the difference? That just, that just dawned on me. Now I know why, because you have a king now. Absolutely. King Charles. Look, see, I'm getting smart. All right. Yeah, I want to hear this. Great, great to talk to you both. Yeah, this this explanation, I'll keep it short because it's often as confusing for people outside the UK as explaining our game of cricket. We have two branches to the legal profession. One is solicitors, one is barristers. Barristers are essentially courtroom attorneys, if I use American parlance. And they tend to specialise more rather than be generalists. And they are referral professionals, a bit like surgeons as opposed to doctors. So 
you deal with a specialist area like tax or landlord issues, civil fraud, and you're predominantly in court. You go to court and you do the arguing. And when you've toiled away at that for 20 odd years, you might be made what is now a king's council, used to be a queen's council until the 8th of September this year. And that is a mark of distinction, which is awarded to you by your own profession and by the judges who you appear before. And you have to get what is effectively a unanimous vote in your favour to get that mark of distinction. And that's essentially it. You, are, you remain a barrister, but you are a king's counsel and you are therefore a senior, senior barrister. And in places like Singapore, where there is no monarch, there is the same distinction, but it's simply called senior counsel. Same in South Africa, same in Australia. So that's essentially it. But we're lawyers and uh, we'd like to think we're superheroes some of the time. Uh, I think English lawyers like to think they are better at holding our government, our legislature to account uh, than in many other countries. And I think that's probably true. But apart from that, we've got pretty much all the warts that lawyers around the world have got. I, I would agree. We probably could use a few of you over here. If, if that's what you do, then yeah, please come here. <laughs> well, we're not going to start talking about your your ex-presidents and uh, the like on, on the Digital Bite show, if that's okay, James, because we'd be here all night talking about what they may need help with. But uh, but James, you, you wrote um, an interesting article about crypto assets and judicial oversight of the regulatory decisions. And you've highlighted a couple of examples that whereby companies have been uh, in court battles with with our regulator over here. I wonder if, what sort of sparked you to sort of, you know, we asked you to write something about sort of, uh, if like crypto assets, what was, your, what was your thought process behind this? Well, I'll tell you what it was. And it is a distinction which came to me really because of the US jurisdiction. We have something in the UK called judicial review, which you know, as the name on the tin would suggest, it is a concept whereby you can go to court if you are the subject of a decision by a government body or any sort of institution of government, and you can ask a judge to review that decision. And if the judge decides it's irrational or unlawful or it's capricious or it was reached in a way that was unfair, the judge can quash it. You know, no matter how lawful it may otherwise have been, the judge can quash it and tell the government to go back and review that decision and make it again. And that is a jurisdiction not peculiar to the UK. It's exists in other common law, English common law jurisdictions, but not in the US. And it's particularly relevant when it comes to crypto asset regulation, which is in its infancy. And at the moment, a lot of bad decision making is taking place by regulators, which in most jurisdictions, you have no way of challenging. You have to live with the regulator's decision. But in the well, UK... Hang on, James. Hang on, James. What's the difference between a judicial review and just going back, going back to court? And, you know, you can you can on appeal. How is there any real, real material difference there? Not really. Um, so in, in the realm of crypto assets, we have something called the slightly, slightly inanely termed upper tribunal. And the upper tribunal happens to be the court that will review the decision of financial regulators. So if your particular judicial review is against a financial regulator, such as our Financial Conduct Authority, the court you go to to ask a judge to quash whatever it is they've decided is the upper tribunal. So it, it, it is the same thing in substance. OK, OK. And, and the upper tribunal, in theory, these are sort of learned fellows, lawyers who have, a, have a, quite a wide spectrum of understanding of the law. 
and hopefully can then you know we'll we'll have a we'll look beyond just the regulatory aspects of the law and hopefully look at it in the round is that is that a fair analysis yeah that is spot on because the upper tribunal differs from the mainstream high court where you just get a normally a middle-aged male ex-barrister sitting as judge happily far more females in recent years but still predominantly males the upper tribunal you have a judge normally one of those and then you have two other people on the panel one of whom is a financial services specialist and the second of whom is selected for their general experience of you know life and so you will get some very very pragmatic decision making so for example in one of the cases i was writing about a case called vladimir consulting the F, the F, the upper tribunal effectively found against the appellant and said no the fca had acted lawfully but important but its guidance to the profession was seriously lacking we sort of sympathized with the mess you got yourself into because they were not giving very helpful guidance to participants in the industry and they need to up their game. So it's that kind of response that is good. You're looking for that from a good specialist tribunal. And we got it in that case. Okay, so to put that in very plain, simple terms, Vladimir Consulting taken to court by the FCA. Oh, sorry, the FCA were taken to court by Vladimir Consulting because they weren't happy the way the FCA had carried on. And whilst the upper tribunal said, look, the FCA were correct in not allowing Vladimir Consulting to do, they did advise the FCA that they perhaps needed to change some of their processes and procedures. And, and as, as you said, it would be helpful if the FCA position were to be set out in advance together with practical options. So they're exactly. directing the FCA to perhaps be a little bit more practical and, and specific as to what they want to help other, other people don't run into the same sort of problem as Vladimir, I suppose. Yeah, ex- exactly that. So, so Vla- Vladimir said, look, we're not interacting with customers because all they were doing was participating in quite a sort of peripheral way in transactions which were on third-party exchanges. And the FCA said, no, you are because, you know, you are picking up customers and you're getting repeat business. And Vladimir rightly said, well, look, if that's your position, why doesn't your guidance say that? And the tribunal agreed. And they said, look, just, just up your game. Tell people what it is and what it isn't they can do. and Give them some options. You know, if you're a, if you're a company like Vladimir, um, explain by practical examples what you can and can't do and when you need to come and speak to us. And what's more, when people like Vladimir are uncertain, talk to them. Don't, don't just enforce the rules blindly. And, okay. and that's good. All right. And James, as a, as a wider sort of issue, because, you know, you're 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 working. You've been working on some a really interesting court case, Tulip Trading. Would you mind just giving just a quick overview of what that case involves, because that potentially has huge ramifications for anyone doing cryptography or, or actually anyone that's a computer de- and program and developer, doesn't it? It does. So this is claim brought by Tulip, which is a Seychelles company, which alleges that it was hacked back in 2018. And it has never managed to find the perpetrator of that hack. But as a consequence of that hack, it has lost access to Bitcoin valued, certainly when we got to court in December last year, last month, uh, at around about three billion US dollars. And Tulip came to court to say, well, if I can't find the perpetrator of the hack, I can't be left without any remedy. And the only remedy I've got is against the code writers who administer the Bitcoin network. 
because they're the people who could reverse the hack by applying a patch to the code to reverse it or just to give me access to my Bitcoin. Now, that might sound like a reasonable proposition, but when you're a lawyer, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up because you think, hang on a moment, where does that obligation on the part of code writers end? Indeed, where does it begin? The Court of Appeal in England are about to give judgment on that case. We, we won, I say we, the developers, won at first instance in March last year by persuading the English court that there was no duty on the part of developers to step in and act effectively as policemen and recover that Bitcoin. There was an appeal to the Court of Appeal and we'll get that decision soon. The case is complicated by the fact that Tulip is owned by Craig Wright, who claims to be Hoshi Nakamoto. And uh, the Bitcoin in question is undoubtedly the Bitcoin that was mined by Satoshi way back, 2010, 2011. So not long after the white paper. But setting that complication aside, the legal question is a very, very important one and a fascinating one. And to those of us in the common law world, what we call duties of care, what is alleged is that the developers, the code writers, owe a duty of care to everybody who uses the Bitcoin network. Wow. If, you know, if they suffer a loss as a consequence of the code that is written and operates that, that network, they have a duty of care to step in and assist that user in recovering their Bitcoin. If they've been the victim of a fraud or a mishap of some kind, and they've just lost access to it, you as a code writer have to step in. Now that's a, you know, put in those terms, it sounds less reasonable because that is a huge obligation, which extends to, as we like to say as lawyers, an indeterminate class of people all around the world, the identities of whom you have no idea of. So, well, and that, But if, if they're successful in overturning the judgment, then potentially you've got case law, certainly in the UK, that could impact on almost any software development. Exactly. Now, you know, most software is issued with a license which limits the liability of its author. But I think this would ride a coaching horse through most of that. And you're absolutely right. I think I think software developers and code writers worldwide will sit up and think, well, hang on a moment. They certainly won't place any of their code on a publicly accessible source. In our case, most of it was just placed on GitHub by these developers. They weren't paid for doing that. They just did it because they believe in DeFi. But I have to say, if I wanted them and this case goes the wrong way for them, I would stop doing that straight away. But James, on the positive side, being very, sorry, being very sort of uh, pro the UK, because that's where you and I certainly live. If this if they lose the appeal, surely this makes the UK a very interesting jurisdiction for software developers to locate. And just in case something like this happens again, and they can say, well, there is case history here. Where, you know, software developers code in the UK, use in the UK, sold from the UK, and they're protected. Whereas other jurisdictions, someone might have a go and they might come to a different sort of resolution. Yeah, that's, that's spot on. Because um, the English law and English judges have really sort of punted to be the place to come for crypto regulation and crypto disputes. I mean, English law is widely used and respected just as in the US. It's a common law system and it's it's uncorrupted. It's reasonably efficient. It's not necessarily cheap, but it gives certainty. It's not necessarily cheap. It's bloody expensive. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's reassuringly expensive as the beer out <laughs> um, But at the end of the day, um, yeah, you're right. What will happen if this case goes the way of the developers is that most developers and code writers will say, any code I issue, I issue on the basis that 
it's governed by English law and any dispute arising out of its use must be determined by the English courts. So it will suck in all of those all of those disputes to England, where hopefully the law will develop in a consistent way. It normally does develop consistently, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And code writers will be protected. I mean, these guys who are mainly sitting out in the States are just DeFi evangelists. And, you know, the, the idea that they could owe a duty of care to some guy sitting in London who they'd never met, don't know, don't know they exist to the tune of billions of dollars because somebody entirely unconnected to them has hacked his computer is just anathema. I mean, they just can't get their heads around that. And I, I can understand why. I agree, yeah. James, before we go, any any thoughts on that? Or are you um, trying to hack into James Ramsden's um, private wallet while he's distracted talking to me? I would never do that to a lawyer. I'd hate to throw a wrench into the entire legal system overseas. Go but on. I had a question. And, and you've, you've probably covered it, I'm sure. Has anyone spoken about, okay, so the developers they basically you know, can't be held responsible, right? That's the overall feeling? Well, that's the law at the moment, and the Court of Appeal will say whether that's right or wrong. I think we're sort of you know, cautiously optimistic that the Court of Appeal will agree with the judge at first instance, but we don't know yet. So, so all right, so they'll agree. We'll, we'll be optimistic and say they agree. Who's going to stop the next legal battle where they say, okay, we'll agree with that. However, and I don't know if, if you've heard this or not, I'm just going on my own experience. The developers say, well, we paid a fee to a service company for an audit. Does the auditor, is what's the potential of the auditor now taking the weight of that responsibility? Right? I could very well say, I own this car. I would never drive it under the influence of alcohol. But I did give it to my friend, and he said that he wouldn't, and then he did. Now he owes me a car. What is the auditor's role when they say, this code is free and clear, and the developers on that trust system move forward? Yeah, whether I mean, James, whether that's a wrench or not is a good question, because as we know, when somebody who's lost, in this case, they say, they allege, billions of dollars, can't get home against one party, they're going to look immediately for someone else. Right. Short answer is my view, as a matter of English common law, and that will apply in Singapore, Australia, Canada, most of the Eastern Caribbean, which are important places for crypto. I think if this case against the developers fails, it's going to be very difficult to find another candidate, particularly service providers such as auditors or lawyers or or those who might operate platforms because they're in a much stronger position because they're normally in a position where what they do is regulated by a retainer and that retainer will set out very clearly what their obligations are. Where I think there is real scope for trouble is with regulators because, as my article says, you know, regulation is catching up, but too slowly. And if you look at crypto from the consumer's perspective, most consumers think, well, regulators are there to protect me. And at the moment, the reality is they're not doing that. And I can see potentially class actions against the regulators being way too slow off the mark to get their hands on the crypto sector and regulate it properly. So that's where I think the pinch point's likely to be. See, I think that's exactly why I brought it up, because I would imagine the regulators, everybody always wants to blame someone. So, but I like what you said. If the auditors have an ironclad escrow service level agreement 
in place. We are not bound responsible for the decisions that we've made. But I, I just imagine, maybe it's the U.S. in me, I imagine that mistake being made at the auditor level. And maybe they didn't protect themselves. I just wonder if it's a route in the future. I mean, it's always possible. I tell you what I'm seeing, partly as a consequence of Tulip, partly generally because people are becoming more aware of risk and they're getting risk averse. They're sort of siloing, as we put it. They're siloing their, their involvement so that it's limited. So they make it perfectly clear that whatever they're doing is limited to activities between A and B. And what happens between B and C, C and D, is nothing to do with them, even if it's all part of a chain. And even if what happens between B and C is sort of dependent on what happens between A and B. That's what they're doing. And you know, whether that's going to work legally, we'll see. But you know, if, everyone, if everyone signs up to a retainer, a contract which says that, it's very difficult, certainly in England, to go beyond that contract and say, well, you may have signed up to that, but you're still liable. And, and James, is interesting, just sticking with the auditor for a moment, we're seeing a number of audit firms or a number of accountancy firms actually doing, let's call them checks on stable coins, i.e. making sure that there is the number of tokens equal the physical amount of cash being held by a third party. And in normal parlance, you would call that they're carrying out an audit. But the auditors are making it very, very clear. No, 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 we don't do auditing on this. We're doing assertions. So already we're seeing sort of, you know, maybe it's semantics, but... Very much uh, that seems to be the style and the approach that many of the lawyers are actually using at the moment, certainly for stable coins. Well, my wife, who's a school teacher, tells her kids all the time, use your words because they're very important. Yeah. James, thank you very much for that was really interesting. If anyone wants to obviously get hold of you, what's the best way? LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn is the best way or our website at Astrea Group. Dot com. But yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. And if anybody who does want to get in touch, I'll be delighted to talk to them. Super. Thanks, James. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get you back on the show in a couple of weeks' time. And uh, James in America, thanks for having And this has been the Digital Bike Show, and we'll be back on the air very soon.